Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news, to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, so listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing, so best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all, and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind, and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about, and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello everybody, it's Ian here. Welcome to episode 19 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Hope you're all well, looking forward to Christmas, and that you're all COVID-free for the time being at least anyway. Um, So later on in this episode, I've got a really uh, fascinating interview uh, with Tom Farrell. Now Tom uh, is an extremely experienced police officer who did a lot of stuff, uh, groundbreaking stuff around the protection of children on the internet involving clever technology and was a subject matter expert working for the Home Office for the last number of years and he's now left uh, the police um, having done 19 years in the police and we'll talk to him it's a really great interview he's a great guy and uh, he's got a fascinating story to tell Um, but before I do that as I do I tend to cover just a couple of things that have been going on in the news recently that are police related to give you my thoughts and reflections on them. So the first one I want to touch on is the issue around the finding by the Court of Appeal a couple of days ago, where they ruled that uh, the police's definition of a hate incident is unlawful uh, and it had a chilling effect on uh, on the free speech, freedom of expression. So this all comes about following some tweets that were put out by an ex-police officer, Harry Miller. Um, He was then visited by Humberside Police, who recorded a uh, a non-crime, transphobic hate incident against him. Um, So that generated um, a, um, a legal challenge by him saying, uh, he wasn't being hostile towards anyone in particular. He was just, f- you know, free to express his views. So before I kind of, you know, t- tell you what I think about that, just to make it absolutely clear, um, 
you know, I'm not really interested in what someone thinks about uh, whether they are pro or anti-trans or gender issues or all of that stuff. I just think it's a, I think the whole subject has just become so um, divisive and toxic and is being used by a lot of people in a mischievous way, I think, uh, to just cause trouble. And what it feels like to me, and certainly I saw an awful lot of this in the latter stage of my career, sort of the last sort of five to ten years, I suppose, is that the police were getting drawn into so much of this kind of stuff to the detriment of dealing with the issues that uh, most sort of sensible members of the public would agree that they should be dealing with. Um, they can't even cope with the volume of serious crime, never mind getting involved in these rather pathetic, um, he said he said this or she said that kind of issues. So I think it's a really great sort of victory for common sense. I know I sound like a Daily Mail reader when I say that, but it is, I think. There's been a, a remarkable absence of common sense in policing for a long time now, not helped by some rather um, wrong-headed and overzealous guidance coming out of the College of Policing. And that's the, that's the thing that police forces need to remember. This is guidance. It's not law. So um, we don't, you know, we shouldn't be slavishly following guidance, which uh, the result of which actually, I think, is to make people a lot less safe because every minute that a police officer is tied up with dealing with this sort of crap um, is a minute that they're not um, dealing with stuff that, that I think most people would feel is important. So well done, Harry. Um, I don't necessarily, I don't even know what the tweets said. I don't necessarily agree with what he said, but I'm, I'm just very pleased that he had the courage to see this challenge through. Because as well as it being a monumental waste of police time, it also has potentially significant implications for the person who ends up having that incident recorded against their name. Because when they go to volunteer to help out at the local sort of, um, you know, youth club or uh, help out with the, uh, the, the, the cub camp or whatever, they're going to have uh, an adverse finding against them, which will, in all probability... Uh, result in them being unable to uh, pass that DBS check, the Disclosure and Barring Service check. So it is a, a serious issue. It may not be a criminal conviction, but it could make the difference between you um, being unable to, you know, carry out help, you know, useful and valuable voluntary work in your community, um, or for that matter, you might find yourself being paper sifted. Um, out of a job application as a result of that, what is by any definition a trivial issue. And the other issue I just want to touch on, really interesting um, uh, press release from the Police Superintendents Association. And it relates to a challenge by the Superintendents Association uh, to government and the Home Office over police pay and pensions and they have described the government's approach to policing and I will quote as police leaders deem unlawful treatment by government as deceitful and showing complete contempt for officers 
in months of underhand and unfair actions towards police. So uh, I'm not going to go into all the ins and outs of the, the particular issues around pensions because it's, if I'm honest, um, uh, it's it's makes my ears bleed reading that kind of stuff and I'm very glad that someone else had to do that, not me. But what's really striking to me is that the Superintendents Association have always been incredibly careful in their language, um, very conciliatory, very balanced in the way that they deal with government and the Home Office. Um, they've always struck a line which has been very supportive of the Police Federation's challenges to the Tory government, to Theresa May, uh, to Tom Windsor, um, they've always uh, tried to strike a very sensible position that always kind of sought to keep the door open, I suppose, in terms of future negotiations. Um, whilst police chiefs, as I've said many times before and I've said in my book, uh, have been deafeningly silent on all of these issues, um, the, the Superintendent Association have always been very very sort of um, nuanced. Um, but for them to be coming out and using this sort of language now shows just how deep the relationship breakdown between the police service and this government and the Home Office has become. And um, I don't know how this is all going to play out, quite honestly, but I do think that the time is probably rapidly approaching when there will be a very serious conversation taking place within the service, um, looking at the you know, potential for taking industrial action or having the right to strike or withhold their labour or something. Because it seems to me that um, as time goes on, uh, the government just seems to dig itself deeper and deeper and deeper into a hole in terms of the relationship with the police service. And, uh, and I just don't think it's going to end well for anyone. So yeah, so just watch this space in 2022 I suppose. Okay so let's get into the interview with Tom. hope you enjoy it and um, I hope you have a very safe, happy and healthy Christmas. All right. Welcome everyone to this week's uh, podcast and this week I've got the absolute pleasure of speaking to Tom Farrell, um, QPM no less, Queen's Police Medal, which is uh, quite an achievement. Um, and rather than me introduce you, Tom, um, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about um, who you are? Well, thank you. Morning, Ian. Um, so, as you said, I'm Tom Farrell. I am the Global Head of Safeguard and Alliances for SafetyNet, a UK-founded safety tech organisation. But prior to that, um, where I started in August, I'd served 19 years in UK policing and the last probably four and a half to five years of that seconded to the, to the Home Office working on some projects there. So very much come from a policing background and now taking that into the private sector. So um, I suspect you and I are going to have quite a lot in common um, in the sense that obviously we're both ex-police officers um, and we've both done quite a lot of stuff in child protection and as well as done 
and doing quite a lot of stuff in technology. So, so yeah, so it's going to be a really interesting conversation just to get your thoughts about, um, you know, what's going on and, and your background. But before we move into the whole sort of child protection and technology and current issues and all that kind of stuff, um, do you want to just tell us about your background in policing? So when did, when did you join the police and where and what were you, what sort of stuff did you initially sort of do? Okay, so back in 2002, I joined the police. So like a lot of people, I probably spent about 18 months going through the fairly laborious recruitment process. Um, And if I'm completely honest, I joined the police with not many preconceptions of what it was going to be like. Um, I didn't really know what I was going to do in my life. I was probably about 21 when I applied, but 23 when I actually joined. And I went away to training school because back in those days it was training school. Um, and which it was in Ashford. Which, uh, which force did you join? So I was Suffolk Constabulary throughout my uh, policing career. The last probably half of it, we had a semi formal um, collaboration with Norfolk. So I was Norfolk and Suffolk for about the last 10 years. But I went, I went away to Ashford, um, did the 15 weeks, I think it was, residential training course there. I did enjoy it, but probably because I was four or five years older than some of the recruits, um, I didn't enjoy it quite as much as they probably did because <laughs> uh, I had the house and I had a partner at that time. Um, right. So I came back, uh, got posted to Ipswich, which is the, the county town of, of Suffolk, so a fairly busy um, large town. Did my did about 18 years in uniform, not very long, because quite quickly into my you service. Say 18 years, 18 months. Oh god, 18 months. I was gonna 18 say 18 years in uniform <laughs> have left much time <laughs> yeah, for anything. Not else. very long. Yeah. Sounds like a lifetime to me, but then yeah, so I did about 18 months, but very quickly, probably about six to nine months, I found I was more interested in the in the problem solving side of things. I was you'd see the CID teams were trying to trace somebody who had been wanted for a long time. And I was more into, right, what could I do to try and help help them catch them Mm -hmm. when I'm on night shift, for example, back in the days where people did have free time to be able to do some proactive uniform policing. Yeah. 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 So I got, I got quite into that and started to do a bit more in the, the intelligence side of policing. So fairly quickly, uh, like I say, probably 18 months or so, yeah. I, I got myself a secondment onto one of the local area intelligence units. And back in those days, probably around the start of 2014, intelligence development was quite proactive and actually probably started six or seven years that I didn't feel like I had a job. I felt like I had an absolute hobby. Really, yeah, I know. Well, that's. Work. I must. I must. I know exactly what you mean because for those anybody who's listening who doesn't really understand what you mean, and correct me if I'm wrong with this, but there's kind of two schools of thought with intelligence, isn't there? There's kind of um, people who kind of get off their asses and go out and find it, or they find all sorts of clever ways of squirreling around and kind of figuring stuff out. Um, and and then there's what sadly has become more common today, which is people sat at a desk in an office somewhere, just querying databases and systems and only telling you something that can be found in a system somewhere. And certainly when I was a special branch detective in London, it was very much the former. 
um, where we went out there and we um, really started turning stones over to try and figure out what was going on. And it sounds a bit like the same. Is that kind of the, the way that you were working at that time? Yes, yeah, spot on. So I would I would almost for those who don't who are listening, who don't really know policing, I'd class them as level one and level two of intelligence development. So level one is the on the street um, drug dealers, uh, that kind of stuff. And level mm-hmm. two being in, in theory, the more sophisticated, say, drug importer, where you do do a lot more office based and surveillance type work. But I mean, I had what will maybe surprise people as well who think that county lines is a is a new phenomenon over the last couple of years is county lines was probably at its absolute peak for me back in about 2005 2006 where really well strangely it was called country lines right and i i still i'm convinced to this day that county lines was born out of somebody spelling country wrong <laughs> leaving an r out because that's <laughs> what you're probably right actually that's what everybody called it and it wasn't just the police who called it county line, uh, country lines. It was the, it was the people coming from places to Ipswich from London who right. used to call it the country. Yeah, 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 yeah. So intelligence development in those days was great. It was just going out, working out who was drug dealing, who was doing other serious crime, and uh, getting people to take enforcement action against so, them. So, so, um, so, so you're working in Ipswich. You're working in the sort of criminal intelligence side of things so were you doing that at around the same time as Stephen Wright the prostitute serial killer was operating you're a mind reader because I was just thinking what then changes everything all oh, right okay, okay. is um late late autumn early winter I can still remember it so aside next to my intelligence work I used to quite enjoy doing the spotting the football spotting which again for people who don't know there was a group of police officers who would work the football games of their local football club and look out for, for hooligans technically, although we didn't have many at Ipswich. So I remember the day clearly and um, it was my birthday, mm. 2nd of December, 2006. Uh, I was in Ipswich police station following um, a football game. And at that point we had maybe one, two missing females. Right. Um, and I remember the call coming over the radio to say that a body had been found. Right. And that turned Suffolk Constabulary upside down probably for about the next 18 months. Yeah, I can remember it well. And it was uh, an absolutely crazy time. But but parallel to that, what most people don't realise is a few days after that first lady was found, we had a, a nightclub event in Ipswich at a nightclub in Ipswich where pretty much every gang in London descended on Ipswich oh, nice. and um, brought guns with them. We had a, a bit of a shootout and a murder, <laughs> oh my God. which was crazy. Oh, my God. So I actually worked on that job. I worked on that operation. Well, the, gang, the, the gang job, the shooting job. Yeah, so what we had, we had all these gangs come to London. Um, so one guy was murdered, other people shot. Um, and then they all starburst and fled to back to London, but then subsequently to other areas of so the why UK. Were they, why were they coming to it? So it was just for this club, or was it because they've got, they were like, they had sort of drug dealing business interests in Ipswich? 
So both. So the drug, they had the drug dealing interest in Ipswich because that was one of the, the country lines. Yeah. Um, but more than anything, the Met were working hard at that time on Operation Trident, the what they classed at the time as black on black crime, but turned out to be more um just drug and um gun crime in general. Yeah. And they had displaced them outside the M25. Right. They were not allowing these events to take place. So right. the nightclubs outside the M25 circle were being used to host these kind of events. Mm. Uh, it must come as a hell of a shock to um, some of these small rural forces when these people turn up, because, you know, certainly I, I worked in South London, you know, at the early part of my career in sort of Clapham, Brixton sort of area. And we were very, um, you know, and I talk a lot about this in my book, uh, Tango Juliet Foxtrot, you know, where we were dealing with very, very nasty um, yardy type gangsters who were all carrying weapons and guns. Uh, and in those days, of course, as you'll know yourself, um, we, we wandered around in our shirt sleeves, didn't we? Um, yeah. You know, it wasn't none of this flipping body armor and iron CS gas and God knows what else. You literally had a went out in your shirt sleeves and you're dealing with people who are carrying knives and guns. So, and then obviously going up to Birmingham when I was in, in the West Midlands and Birmingham earned itself the, the uh, uh, unfortunate um, name was the gun crime capital of the UK. Um, so we're very used to dealing with these sort of people, but I can imagine it must be a bloody nightmare whenever they all rock up in somewhere like Ipswich. And it really was. And I think the big difference in the way those gangs operate now to when they operated then is back in those days, the heads of the gangs would actually come and do the work in the town. So you had far more serious characters turning up in places mm -hmm. like Ipswich than now where the heads of the, the county lines tend to stay stationary mm -hmm. in London or Birmingham or Liverpool or whatever city they originate from. Yeah. Whereas back then you were getting the, the really serious characters yeah. turn up in your yeah. town. Yeah. And turning there, it upside down. I, I remember a funny thing one night. It was a night duty in South London uh, when I was a uniform PC. So this has gone back to about 1994, maybe something like that. And uh, we stopped. We saw this. Um, I was out with this guy who's a really, really proactive thief taker. And uh, he was driving the area car, the fast response car, you know. And we saw these two characters and we thought, mm, don't like that. Okay, we'll give them a tug. And um, they both got a, the car had a, the car had a warning marker on it. It was from way out of town. It was way from Gloucestershire or somewhere like that. And it had a warning marker for drugs on it and weapons and a firearms marker on the car as well. So we were like, yeah, we're definitely going to stop these and have a word. And uh, so anyway, we stopped them. And these two guys got out and they were all proper blinged up with, uh, you know, jewelry and uh, like, you know, um, proper attitude. And, um, and uh, the driver, he spoke to the driver and I spoke to the passenger, you know, as you do. And I uh, got myself, all right, mate, you know, where are you from then? And uh, he goes, we're from Bristol. And he had the broadest Bristol accent. <laughs> and it was just looked so funny because he, um, you know, he looked like he was from, you know, inner city, um, you know what I mean, London or new york or something like that and there's like thumping kind of rap music coming from the car but then he opened his mouth he had this broad bristolian accent and i remember just cracking up laughing and i said i was like i said to the driver phil 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 come here come here mate mate speak to him speak to my mate <laughs>
<laughs> oh, it's funny. But uh, I mean, anyway. I, I I think people stood out a lot more in those days as well. So in Ipswich, um, Ipswich is a really diverse place now. Probably wasn't 15 years ago. So it was, it was so easy at times to spot the people who had come from London to deal drugs. Yeah. So it was actually really easy. Whereas now it's a lot harder job for for people to to spot the signs. I think. Yeah, I know. So, so you're in Ipswich. Did you get involved in the Stephen Wright um, serial killer investigation then? So I, at that time, I was still the intelligence unit at Ipswich. And I mean, I think people will know that the, the girls who were murdered were all street workers. Mm. So a lot of our intelligence development was around that kind of area. So I did know of yeah. quite a few of the characters involved, um, mm. both as victims and those perhaps suspected and but, he's a taxi driver wasn't he so was he a taxi yeah, driver uh i don't think he no he wasn't but the, where the advantage he had and where he was really lucky is he lived right in the middle of the of the street working zone so right okay he lived on london road in ipswich <clears throat> which is literally bang in the center of where and these yeah. it seems we're talking about it because you go back to those days and it wasn't unusual to see rows of girls queuing mm. up waiting for people to come and um, pay to have sex with them which was yeah, yeah. which seems alien now because we've moved into a world of off off street prostitution and yeah. uh, via the internet but yeah so i mean my first memory of steve wright looking back now is he played golf at the golf club i played at oh nice and once i saw his picture in the paper i realized i remembered I remembered him from before it all happened. Really? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm just looking at a thing on Wikipedia, but no, he was. I think he was a lorry driver, or a forklift truck driver, wasn't he? He'd but, done, um, yeah. He'd done various. He'd done various careers. So I got involved slightly in that, but um, the other investigation, the the nightclub murder, turned out to be absolutely massive. I was on it for I think almost eighteen months. Right. Ended up working in Cardiff for about six weeks where mm. one of our main suspects had, had fled to. Um, and that just turned into an all consuming, really, really enjoyable investigation. I used to go over to Suffolk quite a lot actually, because I was the in-house law enforcement advisor to a technology company that you will probably be very familiar with who are based in, um, in Suffolk. Uh, they do a lot of data analytics stuff. Um, I won't, I won't name them because it's I don't want to give them free publicity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I was the law enforcement advisor for them for about a year. So I used to um, have to trips over to Suffolk quite a lot. Now, bearing in mind, I live in the Midlands. It's a bloody nightmare of a place to get to. Um, the take, it used to take me flipping absolutely um, ages to get there because you, you have to trips across country on the A14, which is like, um, you get stuck behind like HGVs all the time, don't you? Yeah. And then you have to like come off and then head start heading towards, um, um, uh, you know, the, where their offices were based. And oh, I used to dread having to go over there, but um, but it's pretty. It's a nice part of the countryside, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and so what you've described was to our advantage in those days because from London, the A12 was the only only effective route in. So once you knew the vehicles of the people you were interested in, mm. they were a little bit of a sitting duck. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And you see that here, actually, where I live in, uh, you know, in the Midlands, it's sort of sleepy, 
um, rural, semi-rural kind of community. And, you know, the old, the old bill round here, um, it's like shooting fish the barrel, really, because you just only have to park up on a busy roundabout at a major intersection and just sit there waiting, you know, for, for the likely lads to come through, you know. Um, yeah. But uh, anyway, we could talk all day about all of that stuff. So um, moving on then. So clearly at some point in time, you get into more child protection-y kind of world. So talk, talk to me about that. How did that happen? Okay, so um, around about 2010-ish time, I probably went to uh, the police headquarters and carried out the more desk-based intelligence role that you spoke of. Yeah. So the one where you're looking at the slightly bigger scale of drugs or firearms or or, or other criminality and rather fortuitously in March 2014 um, a law enforcement course came up in at Heathrow there was a big conference at Heathrow mm. and they needed someone from the intelligence side to go and learn about a system that um, allowed law enforcement to identify people trading child abuse images online so yeah. I, I fancied the change. I'd, I'd really enjoyed all the drugs work, but there wasn't a lot of satisfaction because, as you'll know, literally as soon as you catch one big yeah. drug dealer, the next one turns it's up. A, it's just a tap that never gets turned off, isn't it? Yeah. So I so I went to this course, and this course was um, to learn about a, a computer system owned by um, a US charity called Child Rescue Coalition. So it basically allows law enforcement worldwide to identify um, key indicators of people who are using the internet to trade child sexual abuse material. So CSAM, which I'll probably mm. end up using as an acronym yeah. a bit further. So I went to that and literally I was blown away because I always describe it as a, a computer system that imagine having a computer system that pinpointed the home addresses of people who are burglars. But not only that, it actually said, told you the ones who currently had stolen property in their house. Yeah. And it was that good. Yeah. So I, I went on this course. It was only a three day course, came back, went and saw my boss at the time and said, we've got to start using this. This is, this is incredible. And fortunately he, he agreed and we drew up a, drew up a plan and really, that's where my um, complete drive went to. I, I don't think I ever really did another drugs investigation after that. And I. So what but, year are we talking again here? Just to. Um, 2014. Right. Yeah. So I remember that period um, quite well. And I remember the system that you're talking about, because I just literally come off uh, a year's secondment to see up and the College of Policing working as the national project manager for the child sexual exploitation action plan it's a bit of a mouthful isn't it but um so yes yeah, so that was that was mostly driving improvements around cse you know in terms of on street um child abuse um you know the rochdale kind of oxford telford kind of um you know um stuff that was going on um at that you know for many years obviously um but i remember when i came back to force there was a bit of a there was a bit of a uh, controversy raging across the country about 
using that system, wasn't there? Because was. the problem is if you switched it on, you saw the amount of child abuse, uh, use of you know downloading and of child abuse images. Uh, and it was like a tsunami, wasn't it? I mean, there was just so many people doing it. And, and, and it terrified, I suppose, from a resources point of view, everybody was very, very worried about what that meant for police resources, because I thought, my God, we could, we could actually have just police officers nationally doing nothing but this. Is that, is that, was that your kind of experience? That was. And so you've probably touched on one of my top five things I hated in policing. Not that you said it, but the whole, I faced some opposition with a few, let's say, middle management who used the phrase, don't don't lift the stone. Yeah. Um, well, actually, with people who are trading child sexual abuse material, I think it's a stone that, however difficult it might be, does need to be lifted. And mm. I mean, I have to credit a couple of people, really. Um, Matthew Long, who was at the NCA at that time, who was a superintendent from Kent, but then transferred to the NCA. Mm -hmm. had the foresight to get trainers over to train every police force in the UK. Yeah. And my old boss, Simon Bailey, around that time became the national lead for child protection. Yeah. And from an MPCC perspective, um, had the foresight to say, we've just got to do something about it. So yeah, yeah. There was a there was a hell of a lot of opposition. There was forces even for a good few years after that who tried to resist using it yeah 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 and i can see both sides of the argument um you know because you're absolutely right it's a it's a horrific social evil and it's an epidemic um th that i don't think the general public fully appreciate just how many people there are in british society who have got a sexual interest in children and and who are actively looking for this stuff and swatting and exchanging it around and what have you there's it's just a I, I don't even want to go into numbers but i was i remember when i was shown the numbers for the first time it was unbelievable i just could not believe how many people at any moment in time across the uk were looking at this stuff online um but um but anyway so so yeah so you're working for simon bailey i i worked for simon for a while so that's interesting that we had that in common as well um he's a top bloke i've got to say um and he's done the, unbelievable amount of good work in terms of child protection isn't he um absolutely the chief, chief constable of norfolk is he still is he retired i'm not sure is he retired? So he's retired now he retired um around about june july time um he's back in he's back in the game is he um he, yeah he's he's doing some work so he works for uh he does he's got a number of roles but he actually works for child rescue coalition who right, provide okay. that software okay on a part-time basis he also works for Anglian Ruskin University and the Policing Institute for the Eastern Region, a, a research facility. And to be fair to him, <clears throat> despite considerable opposition um, from some in some in policing and some in the public, he he had the dedication to to child protection and yeah. and I think did a did a fantastic role of of leading us um, as a, as a country and. What I know there's a lot of criticism in the UK around all the historic child sexual abuse, which but I do think it's to our credit in our in our country that we have 
gone so deep into going backwards, mm. trying to mm. trying to give some closure for victims and survivors of child sexual abuse going back to the sixties and the seventies. Oh yeah, there's a lot of a lot of uh, even European countries are not remotely interested in this stuff, are they? You know, no. uh, I won't embarrass those countries by saying it, but uh, there's certain countries, and you will know who if you go to them with a child abuse. Uh, online child abuse issue they're just not interested are they no so i mean i so that that system i'll be honest completely changed my life because policing wise um it gave me a completely new drive mm. and i so i was i was spending my time full time for a good couple of years using that system for both norfolk and suffolk i then became a, an accredited trainer for the software as well right so I was able to train people how to use it mm. um, and try and help with the with the drive to get the UK doing even more. Um, and it just became it became so important to me. And mm. I think having children who were growing up around that time helped as well mm. because it you realise how vulnerable everybody is and how important it is to try and. Yeah. try and help children both from the past and and moving forward as well yeah definitely and i and one of my earlier podcasts for anybody who's listening to this who's never listened to my podcast before you can go back skip back a, you know a few episodes and i do about three episodes just on this issue and, and on, on one of the episodes i, I give a sort of a, a 101 on child sex offenders what what makes them tick what they're you know how they work how the, the grooming process works how they justify their behavior to themselves, you know, how they, uh, different ways of, you know, managing them in terms of investigating them and investigative strategies and things like that. And, um, yeah, it's an, it's an area I'm fascinated with. And, um, but I think the reality is from having run a child abuse unit as a DI, um, you know, quite a few years ago now, to be fair, but, um, the, the, the knock on impact of locking up more and more online child abuse offenders, is the massive explosion in the sex offenders register and and then the impact that that then has on sex offender managers to have to manage those individuals um and i can remember at the time when i was running the child abuse unit um my two sex offender managers were managing something like 80 odd each um and it was growing almost by the week um, because of exactly this issue that that um, more and more people were being arrested and convicted of possession of material from the internet so yeah so yeah it's a real it's a real headache isn't it for i mean it's something that absolutely needs to be done but it's a massive headache because the more stones as you say the more stones that you look under the more you find isn't it uh, definitely and i think um i think this kind of criminality is the is the absolute highlight of how important it is to try and balance the pursue aspect of mm. policing and the prevention side as well because you talk about the registered sex offenders and what people may not realize as well is that that the registered sex offenders contain some incredibly clever offenders tech mm. their technology technology knowledge is way above the people trying to manage them mm. most of the time yeah um, they're devious mm. and you're right managing like trying to manage 80 offenders of any crime type is mm. basically impossible that is yeah. one of the i always think that's one of the hardest roles in in policing is because 
let's face it, if one of the offenders you're managing is mm. committing hands-on child sexual abuse at the yeah. same time as you're managing them, you're yeah. going to be up for some criticism. So it's a really tough role. Yeah, well, I and I interview one of uh, Arthur, who was one of my sex offender managers. I actually interviewed on one of on one of my podcasts, and and that's an interesting one. It's been a very popular podcast, actually. A lot of people listen to it, and one of the most frequently, <coughs> excuse me, frequently downloaded. And and yeah, I remember it very well. You know, I mean, he had he had ice ice water running through his veins. Um, I always joke about him. I said he's one of the most unflappable people I've ever met in my entire life, you know, because if I'd been doing his job, even though I was his boss, I didn't actually have to do the job. But, it, you know, I had to suppose ultimately the buck stopped with me. So if one of his one of the sex offenders went off and, you know, uh, abducted and murdered a child, then it's going to be everyone's going to be in a massive fucking world of pain, um, yeah. you know, and um, but but doing that job. Um, I don't think I could have slept at night, quite honestly, um, because you, you just got you're just managing so much risk uh, every single day that you come to work. And I don't think the public even begin to understand what that must be like, you know. No, 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 definitely not. So, I mean, so I, I, I actually carried on doing that basic function for Norfolk and Suffolk of using that system until until the day I left, mm. 1st of July. Uh, 2021 but I then moved on more I then became quite fascinated with the tech side of trying to identify the harder to to catch people those right. who are those who are using all sorts of methods on on the internet to to hide their identity and that's how I ended up going to the home office back in I think about two for Middle of 2017, that's how I ended up going on secondment to the Home Office as well. Right. So, so you're obviously moving into a sort of a more strategic kind of national type role as a sort of a subject matter expert, I suppose, for want of a better word. And um, uh, was that a job that you applied for or was it was somebody did somebody come and sort of, um, you know, kind of grab you and drag you in there? Uh, no, I kind of kind of fell into it, really. So. Um, in the middle of, I think it was the middle of 2017, or, or say springtime 2017, there was a group of, and I won't go into the technical details too much, but there was a group of offenders who were unidentifiable because of a means that they were connecting to the internet. Mm -hmm. So they were using, and this wasn't dark web, but they were using um, a tech loophole, if you like, mm. to evade identity by law enforcement. And we're talking <clears throat> hundreds, if not thousands of people who were doing this just in the UK. Right. So I, I had a little bit of a, uh, say, a brainwave moment where I came up with what I thought was a solution to identify these people using right. a bit of tech knowledge and a bit of practical knowledge. I drew up a proposal, took it to my... I think it was my ACC at the time who, who I was quite friendly with and said, I've done this. What do you think? I was aware of a home office initiative to try and solve this problem. So went, went to London, presented it to them, proved it worked. And then they said, can you come and work as a seconded law enforcement advisor on this project? And I stayed on that project right till the day I left. Um, right using using tech and a balance of tech knowledge because mm. i would call myself a practical techie i'm not a coder yeah um i can't do really in-depth stuff but 
if you understand what law enforcement need at the other end, mm. you are a vital cog in that process yeah, because yeah. you 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 put a practical side yeah, to it. Yeah, it's it's understanding the art of the possible, isn't it? And um, certainly, a lot of the stuff that I do now uh, as a tech advisor, as a law enforcement advisor, technology. Because like you, I'm not a techie, but what I do understand really well is the application of technology and what yeah. is useful to law enforcement. Um, and an awful lot of tech companies, as you probably know come up with um, solutions that are very clever, but they're no good to the cops um, because it's not addressing a, an urgent sort of operational need, is it? Um, so yeah, so uh, a lot of this, so um, I mean, we probably won't go into uh, any details around this technology because a lot of it will inevitably is gonna be you know, sensitive and we're not gonna be disclosing uh, sensitive methodology on, on this podcast or, or anywhere else for that matter. Um, but I would imagine a lot of the projects you were working on were exactly that um, sensitive and and being used in a way, in a covert way, I suppose, in order to um, identify offenders. Would that be right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was right. So, um, so the really interesting thing is that I would say the vast majority of those people who fall into the bracket of being unidentifiable because of this loophole, if you like, wouldn't have known that's why they were unidentifiable. Right. It was just something that um, has evolved as the internet has evolved and it's all around the way people connect. So it's it's not giving anything away to, mm. it's more use of mobile devices, right. um, more the fact that now you've got homes that have got, I, I think of my house, I've probably got 25 to 30 internet enabled devices connecting yeah. to the internet, maybe at one time. Mm. And that multi-layer of connection just makes life harder. Yeah. The days of the the days of the um, the big computer in the corner of the living room that the yeah. family queue up one by one to to yeah. use is gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a really interesting time, isn't it, for for technology? So we'll come in a bit. We'll come on to some of the sort of current themes around um, <coughs> excuse me, online child safety. Um, but just sort of staying with your role at the Home Office for a little bit, um, was that a role that you enjoyed? It sounds like you did. Oh, yeah, I mean, it was. I look back, um, I mean, I, I, I'm lucky enough to say, having served 19 years in policing, I probably could count on one, maybe two hands, the amount of days that I didn't enjoy in some way. Right. Um, of course, I had the frustrations that a lot of people have. Mm. But the, the home office role enabled me to, I ended up going to the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, called mm. Philippines, Vietnam. I went to so many places right. to try and help the law enforcement in those countries as well. And we were working quite closely with CEOP NCA, presumably. Yeah, so the NCA were involved in it and um, did a fair bit with them because they they had the administrative function of the system I was using. Right. Um, but it was just what people don't realise and what I would like to think is really reassuring for the public is there is a relatively small group of people in law enforcement worldwide who work absolutely hand in glove, no friction, mm. share information in an instant where it's needed, mm. um, and they are doing that to protect children. I mean, I, I can remember a, I remember a case that we took on from the New Zealand police where literally the second they saw something, 
they were on the phone straight into the UK saying, this is happening, it's happening now in this area of the UK, mm-hmm. you need to do something. There, People need, should be reassured that there are people around the world working in a really joined up way to yeah. fight child abuse. Yeah, definitely. And I, I've certainly seen that many examples of that, you know, where we'd be getting um, referrals, urgent referrals through the door saying, right, we need to get, get you know, going sort of sort of warrant out straight away you know and we'd be through the door uh, within within hours of getting that information um but um so you did a lot of traveling um and um so uh so you left a this year 2021 is that right i did yep so um so what was, I, it, what was it kind of like spurred you to leave was it you just decided you wanted to do something different or yeah, I did. So I so I started to get more into the a lot of what I've described is the the pursue aspect of child protection. So sadly, once I was involved, particularly with the Home Office related work, it was generally to identify people who had caused untold damage. Mm. And I I had more of a desire to get into the prevention of uh, of child abuse. Right. So I, I'd always had an well. I say always had an interest. The last few years, I thought to myself, I really want to challenge myself and get into a different line of work. So, yep. again, a little bit of fate. I I watched a, a webinar hosted by the founder of SafetyNet, where I now work, mm-hmm. and I watched him present some of the tools and the the vision of of how child abuse could be prevented in the first place, mm-hmm. and I was just again I was just blown away and just thought I'd love to get into that that phase that area of trying to stop things happening in the first mm. place where before the point it's too late and a child has been coerced mm. online yeah help them help them stop it happening in the first place so um had a couple of conversations and ended up accepting the position that I'm in now. So you had, so just to think about where you are, just, so this is interesting for me, given that a fact I've just written and had published a book, Tango Juliet Foxtrot, all about what I see as being the demise of British policing over the last sort of 10 years. Um, You seem to be a good example of someone, again, I don't want to jump to conclusions because there's all sorts of reasons why people leave the police, but um, your career profile. So how many years did you do? Was it 18 did you do? 19. 19 years. So that's a really tough call, isn't it? A really tough decision to make um, from a financial and from a family point of view um, to, to walk away from an organisation, which is, you know, fairly, um, uh, it's a secure job, isn't it? A secure source of income and, and what have you. But it, it's a tough call to make, isn't it, to walk away from the police at 19 years? Yeah, and it's in- uh, again, the listeners, some of them, those in law enforcement will probably know it's quite rare for someone to walk away at 19 years. It tends mm. to happen before 10. Yeah. But I think I think the thing for me, and there's, I'm not critical of much in policing, but where I think it suffers is an individual like me who was um, a constable throughout my service, mm. um, but I was fiercely ambitious. Mm. I feel I achieved really well. Mm-hmm. There is no career progression for somebody who chooses yeah. to not take the, the standard sergeant, inspector, chief inspector, superintendent route. That's right. So you're actually 
um, you, you don't stagnate necessarily in that role because I went and worked in some really great specialist areas. Yeah. But if you get a boss who doesn't want you to be doing that anymore, yeah. you could be back into your normal role. So policing doesn't have a route mm. to For promote specialists. and reward yeah. specialists. Yeah. yeah, and you're absolutely right because you were, by any definition, uh, an expert in your field. You are um, working in a relatively niche. It's like a niche within a niche, wasn't it, really? Um, but to be sort of recognised as one of the national, you know, leaders in this area of policing, and you're absolutely right that it just doesn't seem quite right that someone shouldn't be financially rewarded for that. Uh, in this, rather than um, you know. Yeah, it's a, it seems to be a, a bit of a um, an own goal, isn't it? That the organisation has lost you um, as such an expert um, to to the private sector, and I'm seeing more and more examples of this. Unfortunately, you see it all the time on LinkedIn, don't you? Where someone, particularly people with digital skills um, in cybercrime or digital forensics or all these areas, who are all leaving the police now because the terms and either because the <coughs> the terms and conditions of employment are much less favorable now than they kind of used to be or the or the fact that there it is a it is a competitive marketplace for people with those skills isn't it um yeah you're, you're exactly right and i mean i i'm absolutely loving what i'm doing but you do see more and more that and like say it's particularly people with with tech related skills um and I think an awful lot of that is because policing hasn't found a way to, and it's not just money, it's to recognise those roles. So I I always use the US as an example. I have friends in the US who carried out a very similar role to me, mm. but because of the way they operate in law enforcement, had been promoted, but they've been promoted in their field. Right. So they've been recognised as experts in their field, and that led to promotion. Mm. You can't get promoted in the UK yeah. because you're an expert and very yeah. good in your area. You have to, you have to sit an exam yeah. and, you, and, you have had, uniform. and you would have had to probably go back to be like a uniform sergeant, sat in a cell block, booking in prisoners or something until you'd done your penance, and then and then you might, and it, and there's no guarantees, is there? You might be able to get back into that area of work, but the likelihood is that the world will have moved on in that time, won't it? And, yeah. um, and things change, and the, the opportunities might not be there for you. So, yeah. So, exactly. So was that a... Was that a um, uh, how, did that, how did that feel, leaving the police? Did you... Did you feel sad about that, or was it a kind of an emotional kind of experience leaving the organisation? Yep, it was various emotions i i did feel i felt sad i felt happy mm. i felt really excited what the what the future was going to hold yeah um everything really but what probably tinged it a little bit is because of covid um on my very last day i pretty much ended up walking away with not seeing many people because there's mm. as most people be aware a lot of mm. police premises unless they're absolutely required to a lot of people are still working from home or have yeah. worked from home so yeah a tinge of sadness because i never joined mm. the police expecting to leave mm. but i knew i absolutely knew it was the right time and i knew that if i didn't have a go at something else i'd look back in say 15 years time and think why didn't i i like to challenge myself so 
yeah, why I mean, didn't I challenge myself when I had the opportunity to? Right. And um, I suppose the $64,000 question is, I mean, it's relatively early days yet, isn't it? I suppose for you, it's only during the summer that you, you left, but um, so far so good, I suppose. Is it? Yeah. So um, work-life balance, way better. Right. Um, without being too critical of the police, I now am treated like an adult. Um, <laughs> there is still an element in policing of... You've got to supervise everyone to within an inch of their life. Oh so. no, yeah. Well, it's all about it's all about the boss. You, you sometimes you, as you know, Tom, you can have great bosses, can't you? Yeah. And you can have bosses who are just a complete nightmare, and and it's a bit of a toss of a coin, isn't it, as to which one you get sometimes? Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, like you say, it is early days. I've only been gone five months, but um, I'm absolutely loving it. Uh, I'm thriving on. The, the responsibility I've got at SafetyNet, the fact that I can make decisions, I can make high-level recommendations, and mm. um, no, it's great. And I mean, personally, family-wise, it's a lot better because oh, my, my hours are a lot more reasonable and a lot more flexible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine in that role that you were in before, um, you're really at the beck and call of a global sort of law enforcement community aren't you potentially where um you know they're going to get all sorts of weird and wonderful requests from the fbi or from the aussies or from from people all over the world about a particular crisis situation that's happening right now um but right now for you is three o'clock in the morning isn't it whereas right now for them is three o'clock in the afternoon isn't it yeah and i mean the great thing for me is i i'm working really closely with law enforcement um worldwide uh, in my current role now that's one of my big responsibilities and one of my big drives is to is to create tools that will help law enforcement as well as help children directly as well brilliant so you're what is your actual title at SafetyNet? so, to speak? so i'm i my title is global head of safeguarding alliances which i would say basically um involves at the core of it is to build law enforcement, government, NGO type relationships around the world to, to make use of the people who I knew before and also to remain connected to some of the really important groups like Interpol um, and, to, and to help SafetyNet expand more around the world. So for those who don't um, know much about it. I don't know I mean you can probably fill in the gaps in my knowledge but my understanding is that SafetyNet is effectively a technology company that produces technical solutions that run on uh, either mobile devices or on computers um, which will protect children from um, predatory sexual grooming type behaviors is that about right? Yes but on the only thing I would add to that is at the heart of it is um well-being and education so not just right. if you take for example of we want to stop a child this happening to a child um say we want to stop a child sending an image of themselves naked to somebody who they think is a 12 year old like them we don't just want to stop it being sent we want to educate them at the same time and make them right. realize why that's a problem right yeah um so i call it proactive prevention and education so um it's it's widespread what we do, but you summed it up quite nicely, really, with with the way you 
um, articulated it. You can say I work in that sphere. Really. I mean, I'm I'm doing quite a lot of stuff. Uh, I've um, been doing quite a lot of stuff with a company. Um, it's a Polish company actually who who have developed a very very effective um, artificial intelligence solution, um, which uh, is deployed on uh, social media platforms, or it could be gaming platforms, it could be, um, uh, so it effectively automates and industrializes that moderation process. Um, uh, so like, for example, Facebook, for example, has an army of 30,000 plus human moderators who, who obviously um, have to take down stuff which is unacceptable, whereas a lot of these solutions that are coming along now, as you know, are, are doing that using artificial intelligence and machine learning. But the trick is to um, build the artificial intelligence in such a way that it's not, uh, that it's very, it's highly nuanced, I suppose that's what I'd say. Yeah. Um, so it's able to discriminate between something that is toxic, genuinely toxic content, and something that's, for example, banter, you know, um, and there's a, you know, a, a, a bad solution will block all of it, a good solution, um, like the company I've been working with, which is very, very good, it's about 95% accurate, um, will will identify that which is genuinely toxic. Um, so yeah, I mean, um, so one of, one of the issues that I am seeing a lot in the safety tech sector at the moment, so for people listening doesn't understand that, so safety tech is this term that has now been used to describe technical solutions that are used for the benefit of protecting people um, from uh, harm on the internet and there's lots of it as you as you all know but um, like any technical solution particularly artificial intelligence relies on vast amounts of training data um, you can't teach a computer you can't teach software what bad looks like unless you've got absolutely shitloads of data to show it in order to teach it. Um, and by definition, an awful lot of the data that we need to build these solutions is, is, is um, sensitive, um, frequently in the hands of organizations like the National Crime Agency. Um, so if we say to people what we need, five years worth of child sexual grooming chat logs, for example, uh, in order to make our technology really, really good. Um, the answer that tends to come back is, I'm sorry, that's confidential data and you can't see it. So what's your, what's your position on that? Do you think, because there is a tension there, isn't there? Yeah, and you've summed up a big part of my role there. Um, in the, so I think there's this clear, the policing government um, see safety tech as for profit. Um, and yes, they want tools that prevent children being abused, but at the same time, they don't want to share sensitive data with organizations such as ours. Mm -hmm. And that's where a big part comes of building this trust between law enforcement and private companies to show that the value to everyone is in partnerships. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds a little bit cliche, but I always say there is no way one organization, however big, however powerful, however rich, will solve child-related issues by themselves. 
Yeah. Even the biggest ones have to collaborate with others. Yeah. So you just described the perfect thing. And I, again, slightly simple brain. I think of it a little bit like um, when people are training their uh, a puppy. Mm. Not only got to show them what's bad, but you've got to show them what's good as well. So yeah. machine learning needs to see good data and bad data. So it needs yeah. to see child abuse material and what isn't child abuse material. So yeah, it can yeah. so it can learn. And that is a real challenge to mm. get that data, both the legal and the illegal yeah. content yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's the crux of everything safety yeah. tech is access to data. Yeah, and one of the big challenges, uh, as I'm sure you'll be familiar with this, is um, uh, you know there's a push to obtain. Uh, you know, we're, we're acknowledging as a sa as safety tech advisors, we're acknowledging the issues around confidentiality and the sensitivity of data because those are frequently chat logs that are that have formed part of a criminal prosecution. Um, there's going to be potential, you know, potentially um, you know, personally identifiable information or something unique to that particular interaction between an adult and a child that could potentially identify them. Um, so the big push then is for anonymized um, training data to, to use in, in these platforms. But then the problem with that is you've got data pulled off multiple different systems in multiple different formats which then has to be cleansed sanitized and anonymized and the problem with that is if you do that too enthusiastically it no longer resembles the data that you started out with so from yeah. a from a machine learning point of view it isn't very useful to you does that sound familiar it sounds familiar and two problems with that as well who who does it who maintains it um, and it very quickly becomes out of date. Yeah. So it, it could be, I mean, whose role is it to sanitize all that data and hold and keep it somewhere and manage it? And that probably hasn't been established yet. Um, and as you'll know, the data needs to be up to date. You need up to date data and it needs to be, mm. it needs to be reflective of reality. Otherwise yeah. you train something which doesn't, yeah. I mean, are you, I've just come back to one point you made earlier about um, it's sometimes it's probably easy to recognize the really obvious stuff. It's the real nuanced. Yeah. What yeah. is awful, awful, but lawful is a phrase I've heard recently. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and if you take a platform like TikTok, for example, mm. TikTok have done an amazing job of getting rid of nudity and extreme violence on their platform. They, even with all their power, haven't managed to get into that nuanced area where actually it takes a human's eye and ear to look at it and hear it and say that's mm. referring to this but their algorithms can't pick that up yet so it's yeah. a real it's a real challenge yeah. One well, it's, challenge it, is, it is literally like an arms race isn't it i mean yeah. as soon as, as soon as you solve one problem and the problem as you know again having coming from government home office policing is that we move let's say we, the police, government, move glacially slow very often. Um, they're very slow to procure new solutions. Very often by the time the decision has been made to buy X, Y or Z, the whole thing has moved on. So the, the solution that you've bought to tackle a particular issue is, isn't uh, fit for purpose anymore. So, yeah, I mean... 
so just moving on then slightly uh, around the online harms bill. So anyone listening to this who's not aware of that a lot is basically the government have um, decided that enough is enough, that they're going to be leading the world, I think it's probably fair to say, um, around for the very first time drawing up legislation to uh, tackle toxic online content. So that could be anything from trolling, um, sort of online harassment, uh, abusive content, all the way through to the most extreme stuff that you would have been dealing with in your previous role of the child abuse issues. And the legislation, which is currently um, you know, going to be going through Parliament fairly soon, I believe, will be making it a criminal offence for online platforms to host content which is harmful, and they can, they're talking about fines. Ofcom are going to be leading that. Um, uh, fines of uh, up to 10% of global revenue or something like that. Well, good luck with that. That'll be an interesting one. So what's your take on all of this? Do you think, do you think this online harms legislation is, is achievable? Do you, think, do you think we can actually do this as a country? It's massively challenging. I mean, of course, you'd expect me to say, but we we obviously welcome online harms regulation coming in. Uh, it's the challenge I see is it's so wide ranging. You've just mm. summed up about five or six really distinct areas of online criminality that they're trying to encompass into one mm. set of regs, yeah. which is really, really difficult. Uh, the 10 percent um, fine that you speak of. I think it's probably widely accepted that some of the companies um, are so big that hitting the bottom line is probably the only way to successfully or try to successfully regulate against them. So it does have to be some kind of financial incentive. Uh, you could pick apart the online harms bill and probably say, that's great, that's, that's not great. But on the whole, I think it's a massive move in the right direction. Mm. Um, Ofcom's role is pivotal in it because it's got to be it's got to have teeth yeah. it's gonna and it that will be the challenge of when they discover that a platform is not doing enough can they can they deal with them effectively yeah it is going to be really interesting and i'm going to be in uh, fred langford has kindly uh, agreed to be interviewed on the pod on my podcast and fred has uh, came from the internet watch foundation as you know and he's now leading on sort of the technology side of of on Ofcom around online harm. So it's going to be really, really interesting one to watch. And because, um, you know, the impact, as you know, the impact of all of this stuff is is massive, isn't it? You think about the abuse of women online, the abuse of of, of high profile individuals online, the some of the really disgusting um, things that are sent to female MPs, um, death threats. Um, all, all this stuff is just horrific. And, and I started using, like a mug, I, um, I got myself a Twitter, <laughs> a Twitter account for my, for my book, um, thinking, oh, yeah, it seems like a reasonable thing to do. That was what the public, publicity um, people, at the, uh, the publishers um, said I should do. Get a, get a Twitter account and start tweeting. You know, Every author needs a Twitter account. Oh, my God. I lasted about... I lasted about three months before I thought, now bollocks to this. I'm off this. I'm not doing this because there's just too many assholes out there. It's such a 
arsehole rich environment, isn't it? And um, and I just thought, no, I can't be doing. I can't be doing with the thing. I really can't be doing with is um, people hiding behind these anonymous profiles, and they just take a massive bravery pill, don't they? And they just think they can say whatever they like. And I just thought, no, I'm not doing it. I don't care, you know. Um, so there is something there, isn't there? About you know, you can choose to step out of all of this stuff, can't you? But for someone, I mean, I've got, um, you know, four kids, two of them are still very young and haven't even reached sort of teenage years yet. And I'm dreading it. I'm absolutely dreading it um, because I know how many ways there are to access um, horrible content online. And I just don't want my kids seeing that stuff. I really, really don't. But I'm just not sure that there's, I think most parents just feel so powerless to do anything about it, don't they? Yeah, they do. And it can be overwhelming. So you can then lead to the head in the sand situation where actually it's so big and so overwhelming that parents um, then do nothing. So mm. that's one of our key challenges as well uh, at SafetyNet is to try and help parents to to navigate as much of it as possible. Because, I mean, you talk about Twitter. Twitter, you cannot win a debate on Twitter. <laughs> it, it is impossible. So I don't even try. Um it's full of, it's got more experts than Facebook. Yeah. Um, so it's informative, but it is a complete echo chamber of people just yeah. arguing that black I is know. white and white is black. I know. I mean, it's just, it would be so lovely, wouldn't it, to wave a magic wand and clean up the internet, you know, because it's, it's such an unbelievable potential force for good, isn't it? Uh, of you know it we, we are effectively like cyborgs now aren't we we can have we can have so much information instantly at our fingertips you know you want to find out anything pretty much you can get it in seconds yeah but, but of course the downside is that it's just full of awful stuff isn't that really dreadful stuff and and i don't want to see you hearing all this stuff about you know, young people, uh, sexualized behavior, young men um, uh, having a very, very strange idea of what sex is all about because they've just been raised on a diet of online porn from the age of, you know, early teens, probably even younger most of the time. And, um, and it's like, I heard it described the other day as being the biggest, most out of control social experiment ever carried out in the history of the human race. And we don't really know, do we, what the impact of all of this is going to be long term, psychologically, emotionally or any of that stuff, do we? No. Um, and it's exactly right, because we were talking about a tiny portion of time as well. When I, we take it back to what we started with, I joined the police in 2002. When I look back there to what my mobile phone looked like, it was a phone. I, I actually made phone calls on it. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the biggest organisations in our in everybody's life didn't even exist. Mm. It's just incredible to I know, think it's mad, isn't it? how it's quickly mad. all that has happened. I know. Well, I make my older kids laugh um, when I talk to them because they were sort of born, um, you know, sort of around the cusp of internet. So they've always, they've never known really a world without the internet, you know. And I make them laugh by telling them about when I was a cop in London years ago, you know, I would, be late need to be I'd be knew I was going to be late home or whatever and I'd have to find a phone box <laughs> a phone box for god's sake uh in a pub 
and you'd I'd like it'd be a phone on the wall and you have to put 10 pence into it and it'd be really noisy and you'd have to be stood there with one finger in your ear wouldn't you shouting into this um phone you know with all your mates jostling past you and you know what i mean it was just a nightmare wasn't it and uh, you know when you wanted to meet someone you'd have to just arrange to meet them at a particular place at a particular time and if they didn't turn up you'd just have to go <laughs> you'd have yeah. to go home with you so they think it's hilarious you know but you know what i would swap today with that in a heartbeat sometimes i really would you know but anyway, listen, we've talked for about an hour. Um, I've really enjoyed this chat. It's been absolutely brilliant. I find it fascinating. I've, yeah, it's just been such an, a nice walk down memory lane as well in many ways. So um, thanks ever so much, Tom. I really appreciate your time coming on the podcast. And it's been really interesting hearing about your new role and everything. No, thank you very much for having me. It's, it has been a nice walk down memory lane. And then... Um... I, I, I'll just end by saying I am quite positive about the future of the internet. There are awful, awful parts, but there are going to be ways where we can really try and help help children. So um, let's be positive, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think um, more of the same is not either desirable or acceptable. And um, and I think we owe it to our children to, to make the internet a safer place. The technology exists to do that i know because i've seen it um the the issue really is the willingness of big tech companies to embrace that technology and and as you say work in partnership with smaller um innovative companies who've solved that problem but um but listen i wish you the very very best and um you know i've no doubt whatsoever our paths will probably continue to cross no doubt in all of this kind of stuff and uh, yeah, and if you need a uh, law, another law enforcement advisor, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. You take care. Cheers. He was often in our street We used to smile and wave at him While walking on his beat But now we never see him It really makes us frown No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town Oh!